This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. The experiences of hundreds of free and enslaved people of color who witnessed and took part in the Battle of Antietam, one of America's bloodiest battles, have never been shared in depth until now. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with author and historian Dr. Emily Amt about her book, Black Antietam, African Americans and the Civil War. Emily will give us a glimpse into her book and the African American experience and perspectives in Sharpsburg before, during, and after the Battle of Antietam, and the American Civil War. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and we're excited today to be joined by Dr. Emily Ampt, who is both an award-winning writer on African-American history uh, here in the state of Maryland and also is an emeritus professor of history at Hood College, which is located in Frederick, Maryland. And today we're going to be talking all about her most recent book, Black Antietam, African-Americans, and the Civil War in Sharpsburg. And, um, you know, which has far reaching implications beyond just the borders here of Maryland and to all of our listeners around um, the country and around the world, for that matter. But before we get into that and the story of it, um, we love to get to know folks. So um, where did you grow up and when did you kind of what was your spark moment for um, becoming so interested in, in history and the work that you ended up doing? I grew up in Maryland. I grew up in Tacoma Park. I was born in Baltimore. But I grew up in Tacoma Park, which is, as you may know, um, a very historic place full of historic preservation. I grew up in an old Victorian home. And um, I grew up loving old things. My whole family loved old things, history, historic sites, and historic preservation. So I was raised in it. And um, I actually loved medieval history first. And I spent most of my career as a medieval historian. I was turned on to history at the age of 14 by reading a murder mystery, um, The Daughter of Time, where the detective solves a historic murder mystery. And um, it was medieval, and I became a medieval studies major in college and never really got beyond medieval history for most of my career. And then about 12 years ago, as a side project at my church, um, here in Washington County, Maryland, I started looking into the history of slavery at our church. And um, it was really eye-opening. And it began a sort of shift in my career. And now that's what I do. I do African-American history full-time. And so did you spend your entire career at, at Hood, or did you kind of move around? No, um, I started off teaching middle school uh, at a private school, uh, St. Andrew's Episcopal School in the D.C. area. And then I went to grad school and got my doctorate in England, where there are lots of old, old things, old medieval things. And <clears throat> excuse me, I um, then I taught at Washington College on the eastern shore of Maryland for 10 years. And then I moved to Frederick and taught at Hood for the rest of my career. And I retired during the pandemic, which is a good, good time, time to retire. Good time to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think a lot of people took that out. Yeah. And so I, there's you you sort of you mentioned that it got started doing research on the history of slavery and your church, um, and sort of connecting the dots there. And 
you know, fast forward a few years and you're writing this really in-depth, really wonderful look, uh, as wonderful as a look at, at some of the challenges can be, but this really in-depth look at um, something that, you know, you would think would have already been done many times because so many words have been written about the Battle of Antietam, um, but so little has been dedicated to the African-American experience there. So maybe, um, you know, talk to us about what kind of led to you writing the book, and then maybe we'll talk about, you know, sort of the context and history um, and, and what you uncovered and how you uncovered it. But but let's talk about how you made the decision to write it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I was I've been working for a while and still am working on a history of slavery in Washington County. Well, that's sort of my long term project. And I've, I've got that about half written, I think. And in 2019, I began to think about Antietam. I began to realize how little had been written about Antietam. I visited the battlefield in the summer and I just, I, I was frustrated at, at the absence of Black experience and Black voices. The, the National Park Service has done an increasingly good job of addressing this. But because of my years of researching the pre-Civil War and Civil War era history of African Americans in this county, I had so much information in my files and my notes about African Americans who lived and worked in Sharpsburg and the surrounding area where the Battle of Antietam took place, and individuals and their stories that were not being told when people wrote about Antietam or even at the battlefield. And I was just shocked and and frustrated that those stories weren't out there, that they weren't part of the narrative of Antietam. And of course, Antietam is the battle that led to the Emancipation Proclamation. It's so pivotal in African-American history. And yet the the 400 or more African Americans who were civilians who were took, who experienced this battle on their front steps, you know, all around them, who were affected by this battle, just like the white civilians were, they were missing from this narrative. And I thought, well, somebody should write a book, but not me. That's not my job. I'm not a Civil War historian. I'm doing something else. But I started, it, it nagged at me and I started to draft, you know, the table of contents and I started to think about how a book might be organized. And I, I decided to write the book. And I thought it would just be a little detour from my real work. And then, or, you know, my big project. And then the pandemic started and it was my pandemic project. And I got it done in two years. So some people got into sourdough. Some people adopted yes. a some people adopted a puppy, and some people wrote a seminal work on the history of <laughs> African Americans at the Battle of Antietam. I mean, we all had our we, we all, all had, had our had moments. Our, we all had our pandemic projects. Yep. Yeah. Mine was Black Antietam. Yeah. Very cool. And 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 so so timely and so important. I mean, just in terms of when you were writing it in, you know, there have been these flashpoints in American history around race. And obviously we had one in the middle of that. And that must have been, you know, felt like you had a real a real 
you know, almost like a service to do um, in terms of what you could bring in that moment to what that conversation that was happening nationally. Yeah. And I mean, I do social justice work, you know, just as a civilian, you know, when I can and where I can, but I, I sometimes feel inadequate in that sense. But, but I remind myself that history is what I do. It's my, it's my, you know, quote unquote, superpower. It's what I can contribute. And so I try to contribute my historical abilities and skills to the greater good in, in, you know, for racial justice. So let's talk about, let's put this sort of in context. You mentioned 400 people or give or take, but what was, I mean, maybe take a step back and just talk about what, what was Sharpsburg like. And then, you know, so for people who have never been there, and what was the African-American community there like? And then maybe we can talk about specifically what happened during the war. But but paint the picture for somebody who's never been there. What 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 is what what was Sharpsburg like prior to the Civil War? Yeah. So Sharpsburg was a bustling little country town. It um, sat on the Potomac River and on um roads that led to Hagerstown and Virginia and Frederick and West. It sat on the CNO Canal. It um, was not on the railroad, but it was close enough to the railroad that it was, you know, it was, and it, it was, you know, in reach of many important places. It had hotels. It had businesses. It had mills. It um, it had an ironworks, the Antietam Ironworks, which had closed down very recently, but was still, you know, potentially a, a an economic engine. It was. Um, it was. It was a jump in place, but small. And it was in the midst of lush farmlands. Uh, the the valley, the Antietam Valley was a really rich agricultural area. It had the Antietam Creek running just past it, just down to the um to the Potomac. And so it was a, a prosperous country town and a well-connected through transportation. There were lots of jobs in and around Sharpsburg. And um, the population was a country town, as I said, well connected. There were there was a sizable black population. I said four hundred. You know, four hundred is what's recorded in the census. It's probably a slight undercount for the free black population. Less than half, about you know, one hundred and. 50 to 180 of those people were enslaved. And that's in not just the town, but the surrounding farm district. And then a little over 200 of them were free. And that's where the undercount comes in. Free Blacks were undercounted in the census. So that's the the picture in 1860, just before the Civil War began. The free Black population was living in town and out in the country. They were working in a variety of jobs, but but not professional jobs. They were working mostly as farm laborers and in other kinds of labor. And the women worked in domestic service or they stayed home and kept house. They lived in nuclear families. Um, And some of them, these free African-Americans lived on the farms where they worked as farm laborers. Um, The most common um, configuration was a family of mother and father and children living in a household. The enslaved people lived a very different kind of life. If they were married, the, the most typical situation was that the father and mother lived on different 
farms or in different households because slaveholding in Western Maryland um, followed a pattern where an enslaver owned one or two or three or four people, but not a huge, there were no big plantations. And so if you were an enslaved person looking for a life partner, you had to look to another household. And so married people who were enslaved could not live with their, usually, almost never, could they live with their, their husband or wife. And when a mother had children, they belonged to her enslaver. So they lived there with her, hopefully, um, and not with the father. And they were enslaved. Often slavery stretched across um, the bounds of freedom and slavery. So an enslaved woman might be married to an, a free man or vice versa. A free woman might marry an enslaved man. And this was really difficult for Black families. They had to you know, cope with that dichotomy of slavery and freedom within a family. Wow. I mean, I don't I, I, I'm not even sure. I mean, I've studied for this years for years and it never really even occurred to me about the cross slave and free marriages that's that's a fascinating that must have been i mean you can just think about all the different challenges associated yeah. with that um are there are there marriages across you know because maryland and virginia sit so close right yeah. there is there kind of feedback back and forth between shepherdstown and sharpsburg that way yes um i don't have any I can't think of any cases where there's a marriage across the Potomac, but there were certainly people who were sold across the Potomac. And there were children who were brought from the, from Virginia into Maryland as slaves. And so their families were back in Virginia. There's a woman in my book, uh, Christina uh, Watson, who had grown up in Virginia and um so her family was there. There are enslaved people at Ferry Hill Plantation who go across, who went back across the Potomac to visit relatives there. So that that um, there's very close ties between Sharpsburg and Shepherdstown in that vicinity. And so a lot of the African-Americans who lived on one side or the other knew people or re were related to people on the other side of the river. The Potomac was almost a connector rather than a barrier. Um, between the, the, those two regions, the Virginia side and the Maryland side. So we're obviously just sort of wetting everyone's appetite for this, but <laughs> you can pick up a copy of this, and a link is in the show notes to Black Antietam, African Americans, and the Civil War in Sharpsburg. Um, and so uh, get yourself a copy of it, particularly if you want to visit these places. A lot of the places we're referencing, obviously, you can go and visit Sharpsburg. You can visit the Battle of Antietam. You can go and have lunch in Shepherdstown and, and see um, what we're talking about here and the connection between these places. And in, in terms of preservation, um, both of these communities retain a high degree of integrity in terms of the historic fabric that is left there. Yes. And so um, they're, they're worth a visit if you're in the area. So these African-Americans that are living here, I mean, you know, you wrote an entire book on how the battle impacted them. So I'm not going to expect you to tell us exactly how it did. But, you know, our why maybe a better question for our conversation right here is how come they're missing so prominently from all of the after action accounts of what happened at Antietam, right? Like, Instead of instead of trying to get into exactly what happened, that's the premise of the book. People should pick the book up and, and, and we can get into that there. But 
what what happened? How are they written out of the record? I mean, I know that that's happens all across American history, but in this case, what did you find? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that wasn't really you know what my research was about, but but yes, it's a really good question and one that that people have that scholars have really been grappling with i think in the last decade or two what what happened to american history that that um in the aftermath of the civil war and it's one that's very relevant for our politics today um what happened was that america decided that reunion and reconciliation of the um, white people on both sides of the Civil War was more important than um, justice for the freed slaves. And that's sort of the underlying you know, theory of, of what happened. Um, and I think that on a, you know, that's sort of the grand overarching theme. And, and you can apply it to um, Antietam quite clearly. Um, I heard, I was at a conference um, last year where someone expressed this so beautifully by saying that over time, Gettysburg became more important than Antietam, and the Gettysburg Address became more important than the Emancipation Proclamation. So that's not my thought. That was that was someone else's thought. I thought, oh, that is just crystallizes it so beautifully, because the Gettysburg Address is about reconciliation. It's all, we're going to heal these wounds, but the wounds that are being healed are about the fight between the two white armies and the you know the brother against brother narrative of the war. And the wound that's being healed is not the wound of slavery. Whereas the Emancipation Proclamation focused on we're freeing the slaves. And that's what came out of Antietam. And the narrative that took over at Antietam was about oh, all these deaths, these white deaths, and we're going to honor them all equally. And we're not going to pay attention to the big result of Antietam on the positive side, which was we're going to free the slaves. We're going to make this a war about slavery now. Black people of Maryland, of the African Americans all over the nation, were really into the Civil War as soon as it started. You can see that. They understood, they believed, I'll say they believed as soon as the war started, this was going to free the slaves. This war was going to free the slaves. This was a war about slavery. White people in the North did not think that. White people in the South thought it because they said it in their in their articles of confederation and you know their their articles of secession. They said, we have to protect slavery. In the North, white people said, we have to keep the union together. But black people said, we're going to free the slaves. This war is going to be about, you know, it's going to free the slaves. You can see it in their actions, too. As soon as the war started, escapes from slavery increased. In, in Washington County, after the Battle of Antietam, escapes from slavery increased. It's like maybe the chaos of the battle made it easier to escape, but also maybe the, the Emancipation Proclamation, which did not free the slaves in Maryland made people think, the hell with it, I'm out of here. Or maybe it made them think, yeah, freedom is imminent now, freedom's on the agenda, I am taking my freedom. I think there were many possible reasons why um, slavery 
it became more of an issue, or freedom became more of an issue for enslaved people after Antietam. But you know, it was there was another uptick in, in the escapes. Um, but why were they written out? So um, the narrative was in the hands of white tour guides, white writers. Most African Americans, at least in Maryland, were not literate. They weren't writing memoirs. They were talking about the Battle of Antietam. We know that because the white tour guides and newspaper writers and so on said, oh, yes, Jerry Summers loves to talk about his experiences during the Battle of Antietam. But they never wrote down Jerry Summers' words. He had been an enslaved 15-year-old at the time of the battle. So we know he loved to talk about it, but we don't know what he said. And there was just an element of racism in deciding whose stories got recorded and written down. And the white townspeople's stories got recorded and written down. And with very few exceptions, the black townspeople's, excuse me, stories did not get written down. So maybe that's a good place to take a quick pause and then come back and talk about if they didn't get written down how you were able to accomplish doing this book. And and I think people will be fascinated in the research component and what that can mean for their community if they're trying to uncover these kinds of stories. And we'll do that right here when we get back on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Emily Ampt. We're talking all about her book, Black Antietam, African-Americans and the Civil War in Sharpsburg. Um, There's a link in the show notes to pick up a copy of the book. Uh, Makes good reading, perfect to get um, before you head back out and, and visit these places this upcoming summer. Um, and kind of put all this in context. So we were talking about how how the story gets lost, how African-Americans are sort of written out of the record, particularly across the Civil War, but but really here at Antietam as well. Um, well, with that being said, how does one then write a book if they've been written out of the record? What, what was your process and and where were you able to find these kinds of stories and, and anecdotes to, to create this book? And we'll talk maybe about some of your favorites, but I'm curious the process. So there's fast history and there's slow history. And one of my favorite sayings is history takes time. And I was able to write it because I had already been working on the history of this county for 10 years, the, the black history, the slave history of this county for 10 years. So I had a lot of knowledge of the sources and knowledge of the people. 
And I could bring together little tidbits and snippets and threads that I had found all over the place and weave them together. I also was, you know, very much, very fortunate that um, another historian, Edie Wallace, who is a Sharps, was a Sharpsburg resident and historian, had worked on the Black community in Sharpsburg. And I was able to, you know, talk to her and use her work. And that had a lot of background in it for me. She had worked on mostly the Reconstruction era, but she had, of course, delved back into the, um, the genealogy of the Black community in Sharpsburg. So, uh, you know, I could use some of her work. Um, but a lot of it was just finding, you know, who the people were and um, using just every possible source, things like, um, well, obviously first the census, which does not include enslaved people's names, but it lays out the, 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 the architecture, the bones of a community. And then um, the land records, which include slave sales, manumissions, um, and certificates of slaves. So those are, you know, some slavery records that sometimes help. Um, wills and probate records where white people pass along enslaved people as properties. Sometimes those are helpful. Newspapers have runaway ads, which aren't very common for Sharpsburg, but you know, sometimes but later on, like in the late 19th century, people there will be little death notices that say so-and-so died. She used to be the slave of so-and-so. Um, you just piece these things together. And then of course, all the stories about Antietam, you go through them, the the stories about civilians at Antietam went through them looking for any mention of black people. And then if there was a mention of a Black person, I would try to then find that person's story and their background and had they been enslaved or free and you know, who were they? And I could often connect that person to a history, which no one had done before. So one, uh, I would use white sources and try to turn them inside out and find the story of the Black person in that source. And that's what really hadn't been done before. So one example of that is a white narrative that was an interview with a woman who had been a small child on the Rohrbach farm during the battle. And she told the story of you know, being evacuated and she mentioned her black nurse, Mary. And so I went after Mary, you know, who was Mary and what, and Mary had you know helped to evacuate the child. It didn't even say whether Mary had been evacuated or not, but you know, and there was some dialogue. This white woman who was interviewed in probably the 1930s talked about Mary doing this, Mary doing that, and Mary saying, Oh, I was afraid, Miss, Miss Miss Ada. And so there was, you know, some repeated dialogue, which is you know, remembered by someone who had been a tiny child, but there was a sense of Mary as a person. And so I went trying to find this black nurse who had cared for this little child during the battle. And the days afterward, when the house was full of soldiers, she had protected this white child. She'd been a little bit bullied by the white child, too. And I found Mary and her family in the census. And then I found that Mary, at the time of the battle, was 11 years old. So this was not the story of a little white child and a black woman. It was a story of two children. 
a white one and a black one. And that just, for me, that was like a, gunch, a gut punch moment that Mary was not who I thought she was. So, you know, the stories of the children were really, for me, some of the most affecting stories. Um, to re realize that, you know, children suffered through this battle, too. They went, they went through the same horrific experiences that, that the adults did. And in the case of Black children, they were enslaved Black children. They were often expected to take on adult roles. So, um, so that was something. Well, that yeah, it's really eye-opening to how – and I, I love how you frame that where you, you take a story that perhaps isn't focused on the African-American experience and there's one reference and you're able to kind of then use that to kind of play off of other things and other references and censuses and different things and be able to kind of pull all that together. Um, you have to flip the narrative. You have to flip it so that it becomes – you can see it from a different perspective. I'm curious. So, I mean, that was a great sort of an example. We were going to ask you about some some interesting examples. The the one of Mary is fascinating. I'm curious, you know, for people who are thinking about this in terms of the battlefield, people who are familiar with it, how many of these stories can you geolocate to what we consider Antietam National Battlefield now? Like, so is there an opportunity now to kind of like take this research and put it on the landscape? Yes, yes. Um it's harder in the town itself because um, sometimes you just don't know where people live, but many times you do know. I do know where they live, and so um, so one of the best stories of Christina Watson. She lived in a tavern. She was enslaved in a tavern. No idea. Well, not really a very good idea of where the tavern was. But many of these people owned property. We can locate them on the map. Um, the, the, Free people um, and others who were enslaved. We know exactly where their enslavers lived. We know which farms they were on. We can put them on the map. So um, I've actually in included in the book at the back an appendix that's a little driving tour of some of the sites of Black history connected with the Battle of Antietam. Um, so that's a part of the book that you can use to drive around and see the sites of, of some of the events in the book and the people who were um, mentioned in the book and see where these things happened in the town and outside of the town. No, I know you don't work for the National Park Service or speak on behalf of them, but is there is there that now the opportunity for there to be a Black Antietam tour that Rangers lead that, you know, that kind of takes a look at that? I mean, do, is there enough there now for that to happen? There absolutely could be. There absolutely could be. It's a good place to, good, good, good way of saying it. They actually, um, the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Sharpsburg um, is willing to offer such tours as well. So really amazing piece of work. We'll put, again, links in there for people to pick it up. It's a great companion to the other things that people would take with them as they go out. And obviously there's the driving tour in there, so there's value even having it with you. Um, I was going to ask you what's next um, for you, where you headed with um, your research next? Is it to complete the the full volume on Washington County and the history of African-Americans? Yeah, I have, I have so many projects. <laughs> um, I am working on the full, the history of what, slavery in Washington County, um, which, you know, that sounds a little dull, history of slavery. It's really, a, it's a book about the lived experience of enslaved people in Washington County, you know, what it was like for them 
to be enslaved in Washington County. Um, I have more material than I can put in one book, but you know, I got to focus. So there will be a book about slave enslaved people in Washington County. And um, I spend a lot of time nowadays on historic preservation, um, and I'm working on um, a cemetery. There is a lost black cemetery in Hagerstown called Halfway African American Cemetery. It's actually just outside Hagerstown city limits because it's halfway. It's in a, a, a town. A town, I guess it is called Halfway, an area called Halfway, which very, is halfway. Very creative. Yes, it's halfway <laughs> between Hagerstown and Williamsport. Sort of like so, Middletowns. It is like Middletown, but it's yeah. not Middletown. It's not um, Middletown. It's halfway. Yeah. It was a it was a trolley stop too. Um, and in fact, the cemetery was probably located there because of the trolley stop. But it was um, located that it was founded in 1897 because the black cemeteries in Hagerstown were full. And um, it was sold, most of it was sold off in 1944 and then just landlocked by surrounding houses. And um, what was left was landlocked and discontinued and became this overgrown, forgotten, lost lot and was kind of rediscovered Although the neighbors knew it was there, most of the neighbors, not all the neighbors knew it was there just a few years ago. And during the pandemic, well, two weeks before the lockdown started, we had our first cleanup day and we've been cleaning it up and trying to rescue it ever since. And we just became a 501c3 organization last month. Very and cool. yeah, we're applying for grants and we're doing GPR and all that good stuff. and. And for those listening who don't know, GPR is ground penetrating radar. So it's looking for things underground without without having to excavate for them. So we'll keep an eye out for the 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 big book, and we'll have you back when when that's out. Um, and uh, before we go, we love to make our guests squirm a little bit. Do you have a favorite historic place or site? <gasps> favorite historic place or site? Well. Um, halfway is my favorite place right now. That works. But, but but also, I'm very fond of Godstow Abbey in Oxford, England. Tell us about it. Um, when I was a graduate student in Oxford, I would walk out up the Thames River to the ruins of Godstow Abbey. And um, it intersected with the research I was doing for my doctorate. It was a convent of nuns founded in the 12th century and dissolved by Henry VIII in the 16th century. And it was awesome. And I've written about it and I've um, published its records, but it's just a totally cool place. It's, it's just almost nothing left of it now, but I can imagine the community that lived there and these women who, you know, like the people I study now were somewhat marginalized and shut out of power structures, but managed to have a vibrant life anyway and do their thing. Well, I think that's a great sort of full circle moment and and uh, summarizing the conversation we had. It's been so much fun talking with you, getting a chance to learn a little bit more about the story behind this book and um, encourage our readers to pick it up. Thanks so much for joining us today, Emily. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. 
Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.